Good morning, everyone. This is the Healthy Idea Podcast by Iman and Nico. I'm Iman. And I'm Nico. And on our podcast, we sit down with founders on how they're using new technologies to solve critical health issues that face our society today. We learn more about their journeys into entrepreneurship and how they started their company. We hope to shed light on innovations in health and encourage you to think on the art of what's possible with technology today. Welcome back, everyone, to the Healthy Idea podcast. Today's special guest is Dr. Philip Alveda. Philip is the current CEO at Brainworks. Philip, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing great. Uh, it's great to be here. And it's great having you here. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And of course, I have my amazing co-host, Iman. Hey, Philip, how are you? Oh, Iman, nice to e-meet you. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, Philip, our first question is, can you just tell us a bit, us and our listeners, just a bit more about yourself and about your company? Sure. My name's Philip Elvelda. I'm the CEO of Brainworks, as you heard. And uh, I have uh, been in the artificial intelligence and uh, health tech uh, world for quite some time, even starting back in the NASA days in the 80s, thinking about how to make computers to fly on spacecraft and navigate. And, and even back in that era, I don't know if you remember the Ronald Reagan Star Wars missile defense program. <laughs> that really was one of the impetus, one of the driving impetuses of figuring out how can you make computers that solve more human-like problems. And that's kind of been my focus focus in career since that time. And I mean, how, how can you have a better job getting out of uh, getting college than to, to craft things that are going to fly in space and go to other planets? That was my first job. I'm really super fortunate to stumble into that. But ever since then, some way or another, whether it's building companies in Silicon Valley or more recently uh, working for the government at DARPA, where I was uh, charged with creating the brain machine interface industry, there's been some aspect of AI and uh, computing and understanding the human brain so that we could do more stuff. We could help more people people, we could have more impact. And then leaving DARPA, of course, I started uh, Brainworks specifically mm-hmm. to apply some of these new technologies and discoveries to uh, healthcare. And so we were busily building healthcare solutions using these new AI tools. And along comes COVID. <laughs> and as you can mm-hmm. imagine, that was quite an industry shaker. And in fact, we were trying to sell into an industry that kind of went into a war footing. And, uh, you know, we, we had ongoing field trials with several different uh, hospital groups, Johns Hopkins and MedStar and others that all mm-hmm. came to a screeching halt because they all had to kind of rejigger the hospitals and turn them into COVID management tools. And, you know, the good thing about being a startup is you can be nimble. And so we pivoted the company on the head of a pin, really. Mm -hmm. Just fantastic effort by the team to really focus the new technologies on all COVID all the time. And so since that time, we've built a series of software tools for COVID management, COVID analysis, COVID tracking, COVID, you know, symptom detection. And now, of course, we just recently uh, released um, a new set services for schools to manage uh, students and testing and screening and, you know, laboratory testing on top of it. So uh, it's been a a tour de force recently, (laughs) but very rewarding. Yeah, no, and it definitely sounds like it. So, you know, just in that intro alone, I have a ton of questions, but I'll try to keep it as concise as I can so so it's easier to follow home. So I guess, can you tell me a bit more about originally what Brainworks was supposed to be, I guess, pre-COVID or what had you imagined, and then how you pivoted in a bit more detail on what that looked like. Sure. Well, coming out of DARPA, I had just spent the last few years kind of bringing together all the critical technology pieces and investing in you know new technology 
technologies that would underpin the ability to link electronics and photonics directly to the human brain. And we had, by the time I left DARPA, and you know, that you have kind of a, a limited time they allow you to stay there where you have a tenure to affect change. By the time I left, you know, we had uh, wired up implants into mice and, and into sheep and even some uh, near human primates where we could beam electronic signals directly into their visual cortex and have them perceive a maze that they would navigate, even though it wasn't really there. And so now oh, that, wow. and so, you know, to do that, there was a lot of development in you know, the technology of, of how do you make a brain implant that would in, in, you know interface with the brain without damaging it. Mm-hmm. But the other piece that, that I think was a little less sexy and didn't get as much press was we had to do a lot of algorithmic work and, you know, mm-hmm. take what was kind of a general understanding, you know, the neuroscientists had kind of principled views of how the, the visual system should work, but they didn't really have kind of an engineering level understanding of, you know, if I put this electrical or optical impulse here, what will you perceive? You know, what is the, mm-hmm. like, if I have an MPEG video, how do I translate that into the flashing of the neurons in such a way that you perceive a scene in front of you? So we didn't have that until we went through this program and we finally had these instruments that you could put, you know, against the brain that would that would see, you know, millions of neurons computing in parallel. Mm-hmm. And so once we had that, I realized that this new understanding of what the brain was really doing could be applied to make a new generation of AI tools that were much more mm-hmm. powerful. And so, you know, leaving DARPA, I decided that was where we had the most immediate impact from the technology, even before the brain machine tools are going to come to fruition, because they have a, a rather lengthy, uh, you know, FDA mm-hmm. regulatory approval cycle when you talk about, you know, opening someone's skull and putting an implant in and right. closing it. So it, it seemed like the software was the, the first point of application of that technology. And so we mm-hmm. began building a set of tools that really had very general application. I mean, we could have improved self-driving cars. We could have worked on transportation or energy or education. But every time we would build financial models and think about, you know, if we mm-hmm. build this piece, what could you do with it? Uh, we ended up back at healthcare as just a, a driving and ginormous need that had unbelievable opportunity for improvement. Because let's face it, medical technology, I think the billing technology has advanced quite a lot to extract money. But the actual, you know, how do you mm-hmm. deliver care and how do you take people's vital signs and things like that hasn't really changed much in 50 years. So the first uh, tool set we decided to build would use some of these new approaches to understanding how vision works. And so when we decided that to focus on healthcare, mm-hmm. we decided to build a tool set that would use what we learned about how the visual system worked to enhance video analytics so that we could actually, just by looking at the video of your face, we could automatically measure your blood pressure and your heart rate, your breathing rate, and your pulse oximetry. And so we wow. had started to develop a series of software products for hospitals and for fitness applications, for doctors, for telemedicine, where anytime you pick up a cell phone or sit down in front of a computer, or even, you know, maybe a smart TV in your living room while you're watching it, you know, if you're an elder care or something, it would be, you know, measuring your vital signs and assessing your health automatically. And our vision, of course, was, you know, we wanted to kind of really make some movement towards what's been the holy grail of healthcare for Mm -hmm. decades, where we have today what I would call a reactive crisis health management system. It doesn't actually keep you healthy. It reacts to you after you've had a crisis. And we realized the root cause was that it's too expensive and burdensome to be checked by a doctor. So people don't do it until something goes wrong. And so we realized we could build this automated vital sign measurement system that could just watch over you everywhere you are. We could begin to predict bad things before they happen. That was the first uh, series of products for BrainWorks. And that was what was in development for before the COVID hit. 
Mm-hmm. Gotcha. So much want to break down on that. So one, I think it's important because you gave us a little context in your work at DARPA, but and, and you gave some of it now. What exactly, if only if you're able to share, like what was kind of the uh, type of work that you were doing? So it seemed like one was from when we talked about like your responsibility was to actually try to figure out opportunities and areas and investments where you could actually begin to create a brain human interface or I'm sorry, a, a brain technology interface? Yeah. So the way it came about was that DARPA had begun inter- you know, working on brain machine interfaces in about 2005. And they had done this mm-hmm. really amazing piece of work where they, uh, with about a hundred wires that they would shove into your motor cortex, <laughs> they could have a quadriplegic person uh, control a robot arm. Right. And, you know, as if it was their own. And there's a great 60 minutes interview with uh, Jan Sherman, you know, in the bed, shaking hands with the TV anchor. Um, and that was a watershed moment. That was the first moment that looked like, oh my, God, you could actually interface things and control things with your thoughts. But at that time, it was a few million dollars project and the arm was a little bit slow and herky-jerky. And, mm-hmm. and you know, with those hundred wires, we could barely eke out controlling a robot arm, which, you know, the command signals for that are like a kilobit of data. So that was like the mm-hmm. equivalent of, uh, you know, a modem from 20 years ago. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. so when I was starting to look at the technology and becoming interested, there was a, a lot of movement in neuroscience to be able to use gene, uh, genetic tools to cause neurons to light up when you fire them and to fluoresce. And so I realized Mm. when I saw that paper that you could actually make a brain machine interface at scale with that, that would far surpass what a hundred wires could do. And the vision of course, was to begin hooking up, not just to the motor cortex, but other parts of the brain to do more interesting things. And so I started a program there that was intended to do two things. One, one was to kind of use the very, very latest optics and photonics and uh, gene therapies to make optical interfaces that were very, very high resolution. And, Mm -hmm. And two, that we would invest a little bit more than just doing a technology demonstration to build um, kind of the beginnings of hardware platforms that would be the foundation for growing an industry and not just doing a, a scientific experiment. Right. And so that was kind of the driver initially. Yeah. And then for those of you at home, like uh, one of the more recent examples of that brain technology interface would be Elon Musk's Neuralink project that people have seen quite a bit. Yeah. People many have- of the people that we funded and some of the technologies that we invested in and created were kind of scarfed up and by Elon at Neuralink and by Brian Johnson at Kernel and by the team at Facebook that's working on the mental typewriter and GlaxoSmithKline and Galvani to do electromedicine and uh, mm-hmm. you, know, you know a couple of the the, um, the deep brain stimulator companies, Medtronic and Boston Scientific, to advance what they were doing for Parkinson's and other disease. So, so we had uh, quite a, a stimulus benefit in the uh, new economy of that industry that, that we catalyzed. So super exciting. It's incredibly exciting. That's amazing. And yeah, I would love to hear about, given that also, I guess for now, I don't think our audience is super technical, but the fact that you guys pilot this technology where you can take things like heart rate, blood pressure, all those things by just using cues from the face like what does that even look like so not even from algorithms perspective but like what is the machine inherently reading like what's that input data kind of look like it really is just the video from your the camera that's on your laptop or your cell phone and so you know if as long as you turn on the video for your selfie camera mm-hmm. and are interacting with your phone and you can just go to our website you can go to medio.ai and you can just sign up for a free account and start using it it's just a web page really so you go to the web page and it can be on your phone or it can be on your computer it's set up as a covid screening 
product at the moment. And, you know, it'll ask you the standard COVID symptom type questions. Uh, it'll ask you to measure your temperature and that sort of thing. And while you're answering the questions, the video is just watching your face. And it's taking some really very detailed, high precision video from the camera. Mm-hmm. And it's using our new AI analytics tools to pull out a lot of much more signal from that, where we're actually looking at the tiny little wash of blood across your face with each heartbeat mm-hmm. and what that looks like and analyzing that. And the AI really has two main purposes. One is those changes are very, very subtle. They're, you know, for the, the more technical folks, you've got a 24-bit color camera. Mm-hmm. That means you've got eight bits of precision for each color. And, you know, we're looking at a, about a fifth of a bit of color change across the wow. face. And so the one bit of the AI technology is to, to pull more signal out of that environment. The other important piece is, you know, when you're just using this anywhere, there's usually a lot of noise. You're moving around, you might be talking to someone, uh, the lighting might change, a car might drive by. And so there's a tremendous amount of noise that has a much bigger signal than what we're trying to detect with the blood washing across your face. So the other mm-hmm. piece of the AI, besides being able to detect, you know, subtler things, it's also to manage all the different types of noise so that the system works in a normal setting. Mm. That's what made the thing possible where, you know, we didn't have to do a lot of calibration or validation of different cameras or approvals for the FDA with, uh, you know, specific equipment. Uh, and we could say, you know, as long as a camera meets these specifications, you know, it will work just fine. Wow. So that's the kind of thing that was driving it. What is the minimal resolution required? Like, uh, is it like a 720p, 1080p? No, I mean, you could you could actually go to a quarter of that and it'll work just fine. It's less resolution sensitive than you might think. So even crappy wow. older cameras will work. I was going to say, because I mean, <laughs> just from uh, this recent com- this recent transition to um, online work, you yeah, start sure. to realize just how poor some of the default cameras are <laughs> on your laptops. <laughs> Yeah, it's not just the camera too, right? It's, it's you know, to be able to transmit it over the mm-hmm. network without crushing the network, you know, they compress the signals pretty heavily. Yeah. There's a lot of uh, subtlety into how we get the signals out before the compression happens and that sort of thing. But really uh, just a, a wonderful bit of technology that, you know, for us, it was frustrating in a way when, you know, we had these products ready to go to market and we we're waiting for the FDA uh, data to come in from the, from the completion of the trials. And then COVID hits and it just kind of mm-hmm. completely screws our business model because the trials are shut down. We can't get the FDA approved until they come back. And I would shut down is probably the wrong word. They were paused, right? And at the same time, the, the hospital and healthcare industry is under assault and doesn't even have, even have time to pay attention to us. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so, but it turns out that it was a real gift to us because that technology of being able to sense someone's vital signs without touching them turns out to be really useful in a pandemic. <laughs> and so, you know, people started calling us, what can we do with it? And, uh, and of course, you know, one of the early applications for supporting the schools, uh, getting the kids back to work has been our, our recent focus now. And it couldn't have happened, uh, you know, in kind of a startup budget unless we were, if we weren't so well positioned to begin with. Right. Absolutely. The ability just to uh, pivot and change on a dime. So yeah, I would love to hear about the new work now during post beginning COVID and now during COVID. Yeah, well, you know, it was kind of an interesting evolution for us. We had a little bit of an early look, honestly. Um, being in the biological technologies office at DARPA, while I was working on the uh, the neural interface stuff, the guy in the next office over, Matt Hepburn, was the guy that was responsible for working on pandemic response technologies. And so he's the guy that actually invested in Moderna to develop the rapid vaccine uh, oh, wow. generation technologies that, uh, you know, is one of our big hopes uh, now uh, in this quarter uh, for a vaccine. And he also was the one that set up 
the early warning and detection systems and prediction systems to detect pandemics as they happen. And even though uh, the Trump administration shut down the uh, the formal operations of that office, Matt kept the software going <laughs> and was getting pings that something bad was happening back in October. And, you know, so we kind of had an early view that something bad was coming. And by the time January, February rolled around, it was pretty clear that it was going to be bad globally. And we began considering what to do with the company. And then in kind of late February, when it started getting serious, you know, we started hearing, you know, kind of rumblings from the hospitals. And then by the time March rolled around, all the trials were, were paused. And we said, all right, well, we got to do something different. And so I think the way we started, interestingly, was actually more in the analysis and in collecting the data from Wuhan and Bergamo and interfacing with our technical network internationally to figure out what's really happening and, and how bad is it and what's working, what's not working, and kind of relaying our analyses to decision makers in you know, most of the Western countries. And then you know, watching Korea have good success Mm-hmm. in managing the, the efforts and, and watching China, even though, you know, they struggled initially, they, they more or less shut down the virus with a hammer, <laughs> you know? Right, exactly. In a way that the rest of the world still hasn't figured out how to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so that was really our initial role was saying, here's what's happening. Here's what we anticipate. Here's what we predict. We built some models and, and simulations and made some uh, some simulations and projections and estimates and, and you know, help, and help drive policy. And while that was happening, we realized that we're going to need tools, not just to help companies companies and hospitals, but to help people. Because one of the things that was happening early in the virus growth was that the the hospitals were shut down. And and when they began to get COVID patients, they would contaminate the whole hospitals, you know, because they'd run out of ICU space and then they'd overflow into the beds. And once they were in the beds where there was no negative pressure containment, then the whole hospital would get contaminated. So all Mm. the other procedures stopped and people couldn't go to the hospital for anything. And so we, we realized that the telemedicine piece was critical and we kind of refocused on that to begin with. And so the first thing we launched was a telemedicine product that didn't rely on the hospital, that people could just pick up and use and track and manage their own health. And so that's what's commercially available today at, at medio.ai. If you subscribe, you can use that uh, to manage your health and, and see the AI technology working in the background where it's measuring your vital signs while you're answering the questionnaire. And then, you know, moving forward, we, we realized that, you know, the initial vital signs that we'd focused on were kind of, you know, heart rate and breathing rate and blood pressure. And of course, when COVID came around and we were seeing the uh, people dying from lung involvement, uh, we realized mm-hmm. we needed to add the pulse oximetry as kind of a critical diagnostic. And so we did a crash effort to add that feature. That's crazy. Yeah. And then finally, you know, more recently, you know, we started building the tools for companies and for schools to be able to use these tools to manage their employees and their workforce. And, you know, I think we saw kind of two general critical needs. One was the whole country really can't get back to work until you get the kids back in school. So that was really one of our early focuses. And and the other is there's a whole bunch of critical industries that you can't allow to stop that you still have to protect the employees when you're running them. So giving them sure. the tools to, to manage that was the focus of that effort. That's right. So you can go to that website. And if you want to learn about the school's effort, just go to medio.ai slash schools. We have a Facebook page. You can search for us there. So all the material you might need to get started, you know, we mm-hmm. offer. Gotcha. And so I'm looking at it. So it, it measures things like your heart rate, your breath rate, and oxygen, pulsometry. And so I take it also at the end of it or during that process, it would recommend whether or not you need or should take a COVID test based on your symptoms and your vitals. It gives you a general risk score. So you know, gotcha. we're really offering kind of three levels of risk. One is, you know, you haven't done or said or we haven't measured anything that might indicate a challenge. Just keep checking in. Uh, the second level, you know, Medium risk is that uh, you know we've measured or detected something either in your questionnaire or your vital signs or 
Mm-hmm. That, that would indicate you should probably get a test. Uh, mm-hmm. That would be, you know, a molecular test that would that would be definitive diagnostic for COVID. And then the last area, the last high level risk is you've got a symptom or an issue with your vital signs that uh, that could be serious, and that you should seek immediate medical care at a at a clinic or or, or a emergency room. Gotcha. And so it seems like the technology is. I'm looking at the page right now. Though it's very impressive and is already there. So from a business perspective, are you guys just working on trying to get your name out there, marketing and just trying to get into as many hands as, as many people as possible? Yeah. And I'd say that we have kind of two parallel efforts, one on the consumer side, just to make everyone aware that the tool is there for them to use. And we're not even charging for it. We made the, the consumer mm-hmm. version free on purpose because we didn't want any barrier to uptake. And, you know, we built it on like this unbelievably scalable Amazon infrastructure that runs on these new serverless uh, tools where we can manage to do that gracefully and afford to give up a little bit of revenue and support people at a time of real national need. The other effort, of course, is is uh, requires a little more customization and integration with company operations, so that uh, you know we need you know to grow capacity of uh, the company tools. Uh, you know we didn't we need engagement with companies to drive their operations. And then for schools, you know the interesting the other appeal that I will make is that uh, there are plenty of uh, rich independent schools that can afford the services, and there are many school districts in wealthy areas uh, that can use uh, the school product. But there are too many districts in the United States that are severely stretched for budgets in urban areas and other underserved communities. Mm-hmm. And so we are actually looking for philanthropic support to help uh, set up operations and testing capability nationally and not just in the rich places. No, that's fantastic. And yeah, absolutely. There are definitely uh, plenty of school districts that probably can't really afford anything else other than their day-to-day operations. Okay. And then with that, I want to go ahead and hand it over to Aman. Thank you, Nico. So, Philip, I was really intrigued by the entire premise of using AI to kind of solve this problem. There's certainly other technologies that could be used in terms of like finding biometric data to try to predict like the human condition. I'm curious why you felt like computer vision and AI was the route towards towards getting towards the solution. Well, I think for us it was less is it the single best way to solve all problems? No. Mm-hmm. It's just not. You know, the challenge for us in the early days was we had a technology that had very wide application. So computer vision, that would just happen to be the first modality we chose to enhance. But we're not restricted to that. And so we imagined that this would just be the first tool that you plug into the AI system. I mean, the the better way to think of it is, you know, it's not to make this happen. We didn't just go out and build an iPhone app or, you know, an Android app. What we built was, you know, more akin to Google's supercomputer in the cloud, but for health analytics. And the idea is that every quarter we're adding kind of a new set of worker servers to it that we can measure different biomarkers, different vital signs, different measurements from different sensors. Just mm-hmm. the first one was the video camera. And the reason we focused on that was because there'd been half a dozen companies that have tried to do it. And, and, you know, a couple of them have managed some good technology demos, but no one had managed to make a system that without touching you from a distance could measure your vital signs at a clinical grade of accuracy. And we realized that with the AI enhancements, we could be the first one to reach that performance level. And so we thought, you know, it was a unique capability demonstration that clearly showed, you know, it only works if you have this new AI. And also it had really tremendous benefit over the state-of-the-art vital sign measurement tools that are burdensome in terms of people and 
time and push carts and wires and equipment. And there's a whole bunch of problems that, that come from having to touch people in the hospital. So, you know, you probably heard of, uh, you know, all of these superbugs like MERS yeah. that are, you know, the growing scourge of hospitals. And the number one transmission vector for those things are the leads and cuffs of the vital sign measurement systems because you can't really autoclave them <laughs> without destroying them. So, you know, you can wipe those things down, but if you put a blood pressure cuff on someone that has MERS and you wipe it as much as you can and you put it on the next patient, you've given them MERS. So I think there's all sorts of use cases, you know, imagine pregnant women that don't want to be tied to the maternity bed, uh, elder care people that want to be able to exercise and move around with being allowed being strapped to something, uh, burn victims that you can't really touch without wounding, uh, neonatal care that you don't want all the wires tying up the baby and the leads popping off when they squirm. So there's just a whole host of problems that we solve with this technology that no one else could do with the older stuff. And so that's why we chose that first. But we've also begun working on problems like, uh, you know, taking the data feeds from MRI machines, x-ray analysis for COVID detection, taking the uh, EEG feeds from the neuroscience analysis tools and doing seizure detection and management and even prediction. And so the technology we see is kind of, you know, building an ever more capable virtual team of doctors in the sky that can analyze more and more automatically without, uh, with, with very, very little cost. Mm -hmm. No, that makes tons of sense, especially on the cost side. And I guess like another piece of it is, you know, technology is rapidly kind of improving upon itself every year. I'm wondering how you stay up to date with trying to implement like, for example, like newer models, if it was an AI kind of system or kind of upgrading things as they come along. So you're trying to optimize uh, your solution for patients. Well, that is the battle of the day, isn't it? I think you just yeah. kind of ca captured modern technology entrepreneurship in one sentence. So I think um, the, the short answer is it's an unending battle. <laughs> And I would say that one of my hiring criteria, and then Nicole's going to chuckle at this because, you know, that Nicole and I worked together, you know, many years ago at another company I started, but I don't like hiring people that are complacent. <laughs> I, I want to find these people who are impatient, who are dissatisfied with the way things are and think mm -hmm. it could be better. And imagine every day, not just as a nine to five job, but just kind of built into their psyche and how they think, how they go about the world. If they can just do one other thing, they can make things better. And they think all the time, what is the way? And so those people, those are the ones that are always reading the blog posts. They're staying in touch with the trade press. They're, you know, fiddling at home, not just going a nine to five. And those are the people that if you hire the right ones and, and you inspire them and kind of, you know, make sure that they're plugged into what's important and what sort of an impact you're trying to have, they'll keep themselves up to date and they'll show up at work saying, hey, Phil, I found this new language and, you know, look at what it does. Oh, great. What, how are we going to use it? And, you know, it's, it's that sort of conversation instead of a slog of, you know, oh God, we got to keep current and they've upgraded Python, uh, it's going to break everything. So that's the difference. And I think that it is possible if you're purposeful to build a culture where that's just the way you should be. And those are the companies that I think that tend to be the most innovative and avoid getting stuck in ruts and uh, technology obsolescence. No, totally agree. I love the part of uh, of being anti-complacent. That's something that really helps drive innovation, I feel like, in general, to always be searching for better. Like, that's valuable in the world. I, I feel like that's it's something that you need. And you actually touched on something that I was intrigued by. It's also kind of like a point of like technical literacy. Like, you want people who are really, like, and this is kind of like a an issue of today, like strong engineering talent or strong STEM talent, especially when building a team at a startup. I'm curious how you went about that. And that could mean like the STEM talent piece, or that could mean just like building a team in general. 
Well, you know, it, it's, um, I guess that one thing, maybe it's not the one thing, but that's one of the key elements that I've built a career around. And anyone that has worked with me will tell you, I'm not the easiest person to work for because I have very high standards and high expectations. Mm-hmm. But I also work very hard to build a culture that is transparent and honest and inspired by achieving hard things, but not just to make money, but really to make the world a better place. And I think mm-hmm. that I've found um, my own personal leadership style that is kind of inspiration based. And if you maintain that standard, and I'll tell you, it's hard because especially when you're growing very, very fast and your HR manager comes to you and says, Philip, I can't have you interviewing every employee. You're slowing everything down because your schedule is so packed. I can't, you know, arrange the interviews Mm -hmm. and you need the people you need to grow. And and so there's a moment where you say, well, right now I feel like I'm the steward of the culture and, you know, I'm the steward of the technical standard. So how do I maintain that? But that is the conundrum and, and the team that you build and the culture that you grow them in is really what determines your success more than anything else. And, uh, and so super, super important. And I think a lot of people focus a little too much on the money and the strategy. If you have the right culture and you have the right people, the money and the strategy will come. But the other way around, no, no go. Oh, totally agree there. I love that, that sentiment that it's the culture that kind of builds the company and not the other way around. Awesome. And I'm curious as well, your thoughts of the space for AI and health, just in general, like where you feel that it's going in other issues that it's kind of penetrating to try to solve. We came to it simply because literally every time we pick up a newspaper or read some trade press or internet articles about healthcare, it becomes obvious that there's yet another use case that if we could but apply AI to some aspect of it, you know, it could be revolutionized. You know, I think that in many ways, health tech has gotten a bad name in the investment circles because it's hard. It's regulated. And rightly so, right? These are technologies that if misapplied or carelessly wielded could kill people. And so, you know, there does need to be some really close and and well-executed regulatory oversight to make sure that the unscrupulous don't, uh, you know, money gouge in such a way that, that harms people's health. But, you know, I'll tell you that said, the other challenge with the industry is that it is so money focused in extracting money for people's health care at such egregious rates that that has warped the efforts to induce technology. You know, I, I can't tell you how many venture capital meetings I sat in where I had a guy literally across the lunch table tell me, oh, Phil, you know, you're so focused on helping people with the delivery, but I don't see the dollars there. You know, why don't you focus on the billing and the payment piece? Tell me how I can exclude poor people from care that they can't pay for and how I can extract more money from the rich who can afford it. And, and, I, and I just looked at my partner and we had this kind of knowing you know, silent moment between us where that was like, well, so much for that meeting. And, you know, we tried to end lunch as quickly as we can to move on to the next meeting. But we had a lot of those, a lot. Mm. And so, you know, one of the challenges was, you know, how do you find the people that that can change it? I'll give you another example that we're wrestling with right now. One of the challenges of the COVID epidemic is when you think about helping a school or a company stay open, it Mm -hmm. turns out that like 40% of the cases of COVID are asymptomatic. Even our vital sign measurement and (laughs) symptom screening tools won't find those. You know, we can find about 40 to maybe 60% of the cases with symptom and, and symptom screening and vital sign measurement. But 40 of them are completely undetectable using those tools. And, you know, all those schools and businesses that are scanning people's foreheads as they walk in the door, they're only detecting like 30% of the cases. So there's this continued spread and these continued outbreaks everywhere as just kind of a general percolating level. And then, of course, you have the big outbreaks in, in the cities as winter's coming along. And the only way to detect them and keep people safe is to get lab tests like a PCR test 
or, or something like that. But today, state-of-the-art PCR test is going for 125 to 250 bucks. And you know, the problem is that you need to test people very frequently because, mm-hmm. you know, they can become symptomatic and contagious within three days of catching the disease. But imagine you're a school, you've got a limited budget and you say, all right, I've got 700 people in my school. You know, I need $100 for each one and I need to measure them twice a week. Can't afford it. And so that's why we're having these outbreaks that you can't manage in the school. So what's the solution? Well, we have developed uh, in partnership with a couple of uh, really innovative groups at universities, technologies where we can drive very, very low cost, very rapid turnaround testing and get the price down below 20 bucks, 20 bucks instead of 150 to 250 bucks. So a huge improvement. But you know what? None of the giant processing labs want to help because they've filled their capacity. They're doing every test they can making like, you know, 50 to $60 margins on the higher price. And they have zero financial incentive to advance a technology that lowers that price, even if it's what you need to get schools going. So, you know, this is another case where purely kind of margin-based greed is up against the need to get everyone safely back into school so America can get back to work. So we're looking for partners that look at the world a little differently, that say with this new technology, you know, the $20 price point can still be huge economic engine for us to grow a company while making a product that gets schools back in the affordability range of testing people as often as they need for everyone to be safe. So that's the challenge of the day. But, you know, the money, the greed, the technology, it all is kind of intertwined. And you have to solve all of these problems to make a successful company in the area. Certainly. Yeah. That's a crazy story about uh, kind of the monetization piece and the focus on oh, how do we optimize for costs versus the, the actual kind of like pain point of patients. But yeah, it's interesting. I feel like that perhaps might be just a sentiment of healthcare VC. <laughs> yeah, there's reasons. It's hard. There's a bunch of uh, complex yeah. problems all intertwined. There was a time when I was building companies that had some aspect of hardware in them. And I swore that I wouldn't fight the laws of physics and I would only do software companies after that. But you know, now we're fighting the laws of economics on top of that. <laughs> <laughs> An investment, uh, an, an investment return, right? Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. So with kind of like where you are right now, I'm curious what you're most excited about in this space. Like if there was one thing that you feel AI and ML could address that you have like a really strong belief in, I'm, I'm curious if you have any like any points of view on that. You know, I would say this is actually technology we have in our hip pocket here at Brainworks. And I think if you ask me what has the most long-term potential, it is some of the new understandings that we have about how the brain the human brain represents abstract thoughts, not just, you know, concrete thoughts, but things like love, harm, benefit, friend, enemy, things that that are abstractions that don't have a direct physical meaning, but every human brain represents them the same way. And so we now understand what that is. And I believe that, uh, and, and by the way, you know, we, we at Brainworks, we filed a few patents that, uh, that protect these uh, synthetic versions of abstract thought representations and machines. Uh, and we believe mm-hmm. we can build a new generation of trustworthy machines that you can have conversations with about things like ethics and uh, empathy and morals and so on, in addition to building something that you can trust as a human to do something that might be risky, like drive a car or perform a medical procedure. Amazing. Amazing. Hey, Philip. Hey, Mon. Yep. Mind if I jump in real quick for a question on that? Go for it. So, Philip, when you say abstract thoughts, obviously things like love, definitely abstract, but does that also include things like fear and anxiety, which, you know, so like a lot of people sometimes like anxiety is not inherently rational. So do you see that also as like a potential therapeutic area moving forward? Absolutely. So thinking not just about how to talk to it, but how to use it to do human-like things or to understand human behaviors. Amazing. Yeah, that's incredibly intriguing. I feel like that will just teach us even like our humanity about how do we define abstract thought. I feel like 
amongst people, it's hard for to determine what is what is fear, what is hate, what is. Yeah. And, and you know, it's, what's fascinating to me is that, you know, what we've learned in the neuroscience now, there's really a physical underpinning to it. It's not some weird, squishy metaphysical thing. There's actual physics, nerve transmissions, links between neurons, you know, specific patterns of activity. We know what it looks like and we know how it's common across, you know, different people and how language is represented and tied into fundamental concepts and how different languages, you know, for multilingual people, you know, we can look at the patterns that are related and the intersection of them, you know, is the fundamental concepts, and then you've got the language-related pieces off to the side. Um, and just absolutely fascinating new knowledge that we can apply to make, you know, next generations of AI systems that are more human-like. Yeah, it kind of um, gets to this point of singularity. I don't know if you're familiar oh, sure. with I'm curious your thoughts on it, because it's sounding a bit, it's sounding a bit <laughs> in that range where, where AI could surpass human intelligence. Um, well, in, in some ways it has already, you know, in very narrow right. tasks. But I, I'm not a big believer in the singularity fear. And I'll, I'll tell you why. First off, it's not really sneaking up on us. <laughs> and, and, you know, a good rule of thumb is the closer you are to working on AI and realizing how limited it is today, the less you tend to worry about that sort of thing. So, you know, if you look at the like hardcore AI experts that have been working on this for decades, you know, you mentioned singularity to any of them. They go, I can't even have it turn on my water at home. <laughs> You know, mm -hmm. so that, you know, before it's, you know, in control or, or actualized physically in a way that can really harm us, there, you know, we've got a long way to go. But the other reason is the nature of how the technology is advancing is not abrupt and discontinuous. It's piecemeal. We're learning how, you know, one tiny little bit of the brain works and we're incorporating it. And that's a new capability and that's an incremental thing. So these problems are not sneaking up on us. We're kind of making simulated and, and artificial versions of, you know, tiny little incremental pieces. Is there one moment where it's just going to come alive and all of a sudden be out of our control. I don't see that any times. Interesting. Yeah. I also don't believe in the fear of singularity. Uh, but yeah, Nico, go for it. I was going to say, so So why is Elon so afraid of it? I, I'll, I'll speculate. <laughs> He likes to make absurd statements to get attention. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, you know, it's fair. useful for him to have the marketing attention. Very fair. I know some people I always see all the time after Elon makes a post like that, they're like, Elon's out here afraid of AI surpassing human intelligence, but I can't even get my machine vision model to actually recognize a banana. All right. <laughs> Yeah, and see, there you go. You're close to it. You're actually trying to make something work and you realize what the limitations are. Or, you know, even when you get it working and then you like hold up a pink sticker next to it and it stops and you're like, what the hell? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I thought it was working. You know, my two-year-old can figure that out, which is actually how I got into this whole thing. When I was at NASA in the 80s and these generals walked into our lab, we were building instruments to fly on in interplanetary spacecraft and the space shuttle for like astronomy missions. And then all of a sudden, a bunch of generals and, and colonels walk in and they say, hey, can you track other things? And, you know, since they had a patch on their shoulder that said, missile command, you can kind of figure out what they wanted. And the reality at the time was, you know, the cameras and the computers, I mean, it's hard to imagine. We were making spaceships at that time that had computers that your Fitbit today has more processing power than those computers did that we launched into space. Think about that for a second. So now mm -hmm. imagine asking your Fitbit to detect an intercontinental ballistic missile where there's all this chaff and other stuff going on. No freaking way. And yet a two-year-old can distinguish a telephone pole from a tree, no problem. Mm-hmm. But our computers couldn't begin to do it. And so that's what got us thinking about, well, if a two-year-old brain can do it, surely we can make a simulation of a two-year-old brain <laughs> that would do more interesting things than a traditional computer. Uh, and that's how I got into the field at, uh, at Caltech and, and JPL. Wow, that's so interesting. I guess just coming on to like the latter half of my questions, and honestly, it could even be my last question. What is your vision for, for BrainWorks? Well, my goal for BrainWorks right now is to do everything we can to give everything 
everyone the tools to survive healthily and safely in this pandemic era. And the, the screening and the testing and the operations support to allow people to be safe at school and at work, we think is very well aligned with our general mission of, of helping people and leveraging technology to do things that, that are impossible without it. And uh, for our long-term benefit, we're, we're laying the infrastructure for a next generation healthcare system. So I think that if I was to say my wish for BrainWorks in the kind of medium to long term, it is that we enable a new healthcare system that's more automated and massively lower cost. So everyone is using it all the time and you have preventive healthcare instead of reactive healthcare. Amazing. Nico, do you have any questions? I mean, I have plenty of questions, but I think we're at time. So I I really appreciate your time, Philip. No, that's absolutely amazing. And that's that's a really great vision. It's something that I'm very excited for. Well, it's labor of love, as they say, right? (laughs) Mm. For sure. Philip, that's it for me. It was a pleasure having you on to teach us about AI, ML, and everything regarding the future of of neuroscience. Well, it was a delight to be here. And uh, thank you all for the time this morning. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to our podcast today. Your attention means the world to us. If you enjoyed today's episode, please feel free to share this episode with a friend. And if you really enjoyed it, if you could go ahead and leave a rating and a review on whatever platform you get your podcasts, Iman and I would be over the moon. Stay tuned for our next episode.